All right, friends, welcome. We are uh, studying the book of Luke, and I know some of you attended the summer study, and uh, some of you are coming out now that we're starting a new book, so uh, it is a pleasure to have you. I'm looking forward to just taking our time. There's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, so uh, conceivably 24 weeks or 48 weeks or whatever it may be, uh, we'll make our way through this book. Let's pray. Father, uh, now as we uh, once again go back and look through the Gospels and uh, just read about Jesus, and uh, our prayer is that our eyes would be opened uh, similarly to the way they were opened the first time we came to know Christ. And Lord, that we would, uh, we would see Jesus uh, as he walked and as he interacted and as he talked and as he healed and as he loved on people. Lord, uh, ultimately, as he gave his life for us uh, in a new and in a fresh way. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, those things that you want to uh, impact our hearts with and that you would bless us uh, through the study of your word. And Father, we also pray that you would challenge us through the process. Lord, we want to be people that are growing in our faith and our understanding of who you are and uh, the good work you want to do within us. Lord, that... uh, is that transformational process, that sanctification process uh, that uh, you desire to do in us. And so, Lord, I use your word, this entire study, but um, just even this evening, uh, in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the book of Luke. Now, Luke is actually part one uh, of a two-part book. Uh, The second part of the book uh, being the book of Acts. If uh, you look at the very beginning of Luke. Look, we'll just read verses 1 through 4. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, if you would please just flip over to the right, two books, to the book of Acts. And I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 1. Again, as you're turning there, verse 3 of Luke 1, it said, uh, I wanted to write this for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then two books over, book of Acts, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, and and then it goes on from there. And you'll notice the name that is repeated there is the name Theophilus. Now, uh, so the idea being that Luke is part one of the book, Acts would be part two of the book, and those two books there would tell the story of Jesus and then the story of Jesus' disciples uh, in the first 20 or 30 years of, of ministry following the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Now, a question becomes, well, who is this Theophilus fellow? Well, there are some that don't think there was actually a man named Theophilus. The word Theophilus means lover of God or one who loves God or those who love God. So conceivably, that could refer to a church or the church. You know, we love God. And, and so it's written to us, the church, Theophilus. And so that's certainly a possibility. There are others that uh, suggest that the Theophilus and the word Theophilus is sort of a pseudonym. It's a name that is used 
uh, for a fella almost who's trying to be incognito. We know that in the first century, um, and especially uh, as you get closer and closer to the year 70 AD, the Christians and those who were followers of Christ in that first century, they were on the outs of society. The Romans, who ultimately believed that you should be worshiping them and their gods, uh, they didn't really like these Christians who wouldn't bow the knee. And so here's this fellow that's a Christian, and Luke is writing this book to him, these books to him, and he can't just say, hey, Jim, this is for you, because what happens if it gets caught? Then everyone's going to know that Jim is a Christian. And so it's sort of a secretive name. He's just calling him Theophilus, but that's not his real name. Some people think that is what the Theophilus mean. And then other people just simply think there's a guy named Theophilus that Luke had a relationship with, and now he's writing a book to that particular guy. The theory is that this most excellent Theophilus, was a, it's a Greek name, that it was a wealthy Greek individual, perhaps whom uh, Luke himself was a slave to at one point in time, and that Theophilus eventually gave Luke his freedom so that Luke could pursue a life of ministry. Uh, and as we see in the book of Acts, Luke's, Luke will actually travel with the Apostle Paul and serve with him. Uh, and so perhaps that is what we're referring to, that it's an actual guy that had a relationship with Luke. So that's a long way around the, the barn there, just to tell you that it's addressed to a Theophilus who we don't definitively know who that is. One of the things that you're going to discover as, you, as we study the book of Luke is that Luke is very much interested in portraying Jesus. Certainly he doesn't doubt that Jesus is God in any way, but he portrays the humanity of Jesus unlike the other, uh, really, two Gospels. Now remember that there's four Gospels that are written that we have in our canon. Three of those are what are called the synoptic Gospels. They essentially tell the same story. Uh, think of a car accident, and three different guys were standing, or gals were standing on three different corners and observed it from a slightly different perspective. The synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very, very similar. John is quite unique. Actually, if you look at John, which was perhaps written as many as 20 years after those other Gospels, John spends half of his book looking at the last week of Jesus' life, whereas the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they don't do so. So those books are very similar. But one of the things about, you'll notice about the book of Luke is that Jesus, or excuse me, that Luke, he spends a lot of time looking at the humanity of Jesus. We know that Luke was a medical doctor, a slave, as I mentioned to you earlier, Today, medical doctors are kind of at the pinnacle of uh, success in our society, it seems. Uh, But in that day, not so. Uh, He was a medical doctor hired to be the full-time physician for a particular person. Maybe this guy, Theophilus, there. But was eventually given his freedom so that he could go into the ministry, as I mentioned. Luke is a Greek, or a Gentile. uh, And it's uh, likely, or it's possible, probably, maybe is a better word, that uh, this is the only book in the Bible written by a non-Jew. Um, another interesting thing I, I realized or came to discover, uh, we know that the New Testament has 27 books. Luke wrote two of them. Uh, Paul wrote at least 12 of them. Some people think Paul wrote a 13th book, the book of Hebrews. But let's just go with the number 12. Paul wrote 12 of them. So Paul wrote close to half of the New Testament. However, as far as content or amount of material, if you combine the book of Luke and the book of Acts, 
Luke actually wrote more than the Apostle Paul, because Paul wrote a number of these smaller books. So Paul wrote 12 books, but Luke actually has written more content of the New Testament than any other uh, person. Last thing, the approximate time frame or timetable of this. Uh, A couple things that we know. As we get to Luke chapter 21, what we're going to see is that Jesus predicts the coming destruction of the temple. So we know that occurred in the year 70 A.D. So 70 A.D., it's still future when uh, Luke is writing about it. Otherwise, he'd make some kind of a reference to it. The other thing is when you get to the book of Acts, the very last chapter or so of the book of Acts, it's referencing certain people, which puts it at a time frame of around 65 A.D. And so since Acts came after Luke, then we know that this book had to be written sometime before 65 A.D. And most scholars uh, speculate and suggest that it was around the year 61 or maybe 62 A.D. So roughly about 30 years after Jesus uh, lived and died and, and ascended into heaven. Okay, So that's the book, that's the intro, I guess you might say, uh, to the book of Luke. We already read the first uh, four verses. Uh, so just uh, to go back through them here is, here you have a scholarly individual that's going to sit down, take all the information, all the facts, if you will, and lay that out as an orderly account to prove his point. And that is that Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh became a man and would go to a cross and die, not by accident, but on purpose. Um, He organizes this information, as you see in these verses here. You look in verse 2. He organizes it by talking about the eyewitnesses that he spoke with to gather his information. Luke was not an eyewitness, uh, like a Peter or a John or, or others would have been. Um, so he, he takes his information from eyewitnesses. Um, he also talks about those that in the past have written and that he references those materials. So he takes all of that material, he puts it out in an orderly account. Uh, when we say orderly, that doesn't necessarily mean it's chronological that these are the events and and how they occurred in Jesus' life, just simply uh, his plan in writing these things. Okay? All right, let's go on to verse 5. It says, Now in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Three people are mentioned here. We have Zechariah, actually four people, Elizabeth, uh, Abijah, and then finally Herod. Uh, We'll take these one at a time. Herod is the king of Judea here. Uh, That means he's appointed the ruler, or the governor, if you will, of the region of Judea. That's pretty much the southern region of Israel. Jerusalem would be included there. There, Herod is a title, like Pharaoh is a title. So there is Herod Antipas and Herod the Great and, and all these Herods that you'll read about. And as you go through the Gospels, you'll hear Herod is mentioned. It's not always the same one. You just have to look at the time period that we're talking about here. Here, we are talking about the years right around what we would call the year one, or negative one. There's no year zero on the calendar. So it's right around that time period, as you're going to see, that Jesus is going to be born. Now, you might be aware, you may not be, but it is important to point out, because some people will attempt, at least, to discredit Christianity, and they'll say, you know, your calendar's even wrong. You guys don't know what you're doing. 
and that Jesus was actually born somewhere around the year negative four, and yet a mistake, you know, was made, and everyone thinks it goes to this year zero, year one, and so you guys are fools here. Uh, the Gregorian calendar, what you're familiar with, it was created, it was put out there, it was commissioned uh, by this Pope Gregory. Uh, he felt that Jesus was the, sen- the coming of Jesus was a central event of human history, and so he wanted a calendar to revolve around that. He had a guy go and do all the research. The guy came up with it. He said, I'm pretty convinced on this. It's the year one. I don't know if he said, I'd like a little more time to check my facts. And the Gregory said, you don't have any more time. We've got to get it to the publisher. Calendars were little kittens. They're being made, and we've got to get it there. And so uh, they went ahead with it. Shortly thereafter, I don't remember the name of the fellow, but shortly after, he came back to Pope Gregory and said that he was wrong, that you know, he re-looked at his calculations, and he's about four years off. So in reality, Jesus was probably born around the year 4 B.C. That doesn't make any sense because before Christ and all that kind of stuff. So they never fixed it or changed it. It's interesting when, when Y2K was coming. For some people, it was a computer glitch thing. For other people, it was like the end of the world, you know, 2000 and all that. It should, I guess, have been 1996 if, if that was actually how things would have worked. So anyway, this is Herod the Great. He ruled during the first few years of the life of Jesus. Uh, I think until Jesus would have been about four or five years old, he ruled and he died. A new guy, also named Herod, came on the scene. Anyway, that's the first fellow that is listed there. Uh, the second name is the name Zechariah. We're going to see that he is a priest. You'll notice it says that he is of the division of Abijah. Now, hopefully, I think everyone here attends... Sunday morning services, we just did all of that study in the book of Chronicles and First and Second Chronicles. So hopefully we don't have to go back over it again this evening here. But you may recall that there were there was were priestly orders according to the division of Abijah. There were divisions of the priest, uh, twenty four of them. I believe Abijah was about the eighth or ninth of those divisions. Uh, the divisions were made up of thousands of priests. I think the number was 4,000, but I could be wrong. And those guys would come to Jerusalem, they would serve for a week, and then they'd go back home and do their regular job, so to speak, you know, farmer, whatever it may be. And then they'd come back to Jerusalem another time later in the year, do their thing and go back. Um, so Zechariah, I should say, is one of those priests. And he is of this division of Abijah, and it says that he has a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And so uh, that's also this priestly line that we've been talking about. Remember, Moses was sort of the uh, military leader, uh, political leader, if you will, of the, the Jewish people. His brother Aaron was the priestly leader. And so she's from that particular line. Uh, and it says, verse 6, uh, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Good people, right? They're trying to serve the Lord. They're certainly not hypocrites in any way here. Um, we, we read there, he, uh, Luke is very clear to spell out words like they're righteous, they're blameless, they're all the commandments and statutes. But then statutes. But notice verse 7, it says, but. All right, now that's going to be significant because it's going, it's going to anticipate an argument that is, uh, was typically lobbed over at uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's estimated that they were uh, in their 60s. Now, 
barrenness in that culture and in that time period was seen as some form of a judgment of God or uh, that here is a people apparently you're not doing something right otherwise God would bless you with lots of children but the argument here or that uh, Luke is anticipating is that's not the case at all and so we need to be careful when we look at people that maybe are struggling with a particular thing where we can come to this conclusion up oh, that must be because God's angry with you or upset with you. That's not the case at all here. Here's the people that are righteous, they're walking blamelessly, and yet they still have no children. Now, why don't they have any children? Because God's about to do something remarkable here, as we're going to see. It says they were both advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, we've been looking at the temple also on Sunday mornings, and one of the things that we know is there were all sorts of offerings. Uh, and we talked about the burn offering and the wave offering and the grain offering. There were all these offerings, and as we said, each offering was designed to communicate a different thing to God. The incense offering was one of those. It actually occurred twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. And of the division of the priest, now remember, there's, there's roughly 4,000 priests, one of those guys is selected to do the morning burning, another guy the evening, another one for the next day, and so on. So 14 guys are going to get the opportunity to go in to burn the incense there. I don't know if your name is thrown back in the hat and you get a chance to go twice or not here. But out of 4,000 people, only 14 are going to be picked. And you don't become a priest till you're 30, and you go through this process. There's no end date necessarily there, but let's just say until you're 60, you know, there's only 30 chances you get to have your name pulled out of there 14 times. Uh, you can do the math there. You can figure it out. This is, it's not a common occurrence. This is not something he's always going in. It's probably a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah to get to go into the temple, essentially alone. There would be other guys in the, the front section of the temple. And to take these, this incense, and whether it be in a liquid form or even just if it's the... Um, herb type of form and drop it onto these hot coals and then what would start it would be more of a liquid form they would start to rise up the smoke would begin to rise up and that was symbolic of the people's prayers it's a sweet smelling savor or fragrance that is rising up into the heavens and that the lord is hearing it and so what would happen is twice a day all the jews well, not everyone but the jews would come to the temple there the priest would acknowledge them there and he said all right i'm going in he would go in he would offer the prayers on behalf of the people. Then he would come back out, pronounce a blessing over the people, and they would go on their way you know, to work or whatever it may be, or back home to dinner or something. And so here he is now going to go in. He was chosen by Lot. He's going to go into the temple and burn the incense. And verse 10, it says, In the whole multitude of the people, they were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him, while he's inside, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So I don't know if his first thought is like, whoa, this is awesome. Is this what normally happens? You know, it's amazing. You know, nobody ever said anything. I wonder if there's like a secrecy oath when you go out of here. But he's, he's clearly troubled by this angel. And if you read in the scripture different descriptions of the angels, they're troubling 
You know, they're not cute little girls with wings or whatever and, you know, that speak soft little words to you. There's an aspect of angels that are troubling. So he is troubled, he's fearful um, of seeing this particular angel. And the angel immediately reads it on his face. So he says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? Well, the next phrase says, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, if he is in his 60s, it says in verse uh, 7 that he is advanced in years. So we don't necessarily know how old he is. But when did he and his wife get married? Probably when he was maybe around 20 or so. Maybe she was a little bit younger there. Um, So let's just say he was 20. Here he is now in his 60s. He's advanced in his years. This is 40 years of praying. God, give us a kid. You know, initially it was one of those, oh, Lord, give us a kid. And expecting, okay, not this month, maybe next month, Lord, you know, that's okay. But after five years and ten years, you begin to get a little more desperate in your prayers. God, you know, we're getting older now, we're 40. You know, Lord, you know, what's going on here? And then 50. And at what age do you think he came to the point where he said, you know what, it's over. I guess it's not going to happen for us. And maybe they started thinking about other options or something, adopting or something like that. You know, I suspect he hadn't prayed this prayer for a child in many, many years. And yet this angel now approaches him and he says, don't be afraid, your prayer has been answered and your wife will bear a son and you shall call his name John. Now, it's interesting, the name John, it means uh, favor of God or favored of God. Uh, you could also translate it uh, mercy, the mercies of God. And so here is this young man, and it's a demonstration really to Zachariah and Elizabeth. Don't worry, I've heard your prayer. I know there were times you doubted me, and you questioned, and you wondered, but I am going to give you the son. His name is going to be John. Verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Certainly, many are going to rejoice at his birth from the perspective of being happy for Zechariah, being happy uh, for Elizabeth. But uh, the idea is, like throughout the, the years that would come, the millennia would come, we would rejoice at the coming of John because we know with the coming of John is also the coming of the Messiah. But it continues, it says, and he will be great before the Lord. Now, I want to show you, he, he's great, if you will, in three ways. We'll take a look at them here. The first one, it talks about the greatness of his separation. He's not going to be a, a, a regular average kid running around playing kickball or whatever. He's going to be a unique kid separated unto the things of the Lord. It says, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. The idea there of this Nazarite vow that you read about in the Old Testament here that from birth, this is going to be a young man that is set apart to the work of God. So he's great in his separation. The second one there, uh, it talks about, if you will, his endowment. That what is God has uh, bestowed upon him for the work of the ministry and the youth. So it says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, that is certainly not typical. All right, and so here is this great young man filled with the Spirit. A little later you'll see that even as he's in his mother's womb, when Mary will come to the house to visit, that John will get all excited and jump up and down inside of his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then it goes on in verse 16. Uh, and it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people that are prepared. And, and the last way that John will be great is that he will be a herald, a, a, a crying voice that people will hear and they will heed and they will turn. We see in verse 17 what his ministry is going to be. The ministry of John the Baptist is to make uh, ready for the Lord a people that are prepared. So John's primary message, if you have to, have to pick one word for John's message, sum up his sermons, it would be the word repent. He'll, he'll go on, he'll talk about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he'll talk about, he'll baptize people for uh, sort of this repentance of sins. You know, if you're coming to you repent of your sins and so on. People would begin to think that John the Baptist, the, this, that's who he is by the way, I don't know if uh, you, you put that all together yet, but people will begin to think that John the Baptist is actually the Messiah, that he's going to uh, be the one that God uh, had sent, had been promising forever to send. And John would be very careful to point out, no, I'm not that one. There's another one that is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandal. He's going to be the one you're following. When finally Jesus does come on the scene, uh, some of his disciples are there with John. He sees Jesus and he says, that's the guy you should go follow. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go after him. And some of John's disciples do. They leave. And John doesn't care. That's why John came, to point people to Jesus. So we'll talk about that as we continue to go through the Gospels. I'd like you to notice verse 16 and 17. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now the him will clearly become Jesus. You'll notice that as we continue to move through this passage here. But in the words, just uh, five, six words before, it's referring to him as God. So it's just this very simple, quick, moving through that what Luke is going to point out as we go through the rest of this book here is that Jesus wasn't just some great guy, some amazing figure like John the Baptist was, but he was actually deity in the flesh. He was God in the flesh here. Well, moving on to verse 18, it says, Now Zechariah said to the angel, so remember, the angel said, don't be afraid. We've heard your prayer. God's heard your prayer. You're going to give birth to a son. You're going to call him John. And verse 18, it says, Now Zechariah said to the angel, Well, how shall I know this? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, how shall I know this doesn't sound so bad. You know, if, but if I said to the angel, Prove it. You, you would sense in my tone of voice and in my words that I got a bad attitude about this promise that is coming my way. Matter of fact, look down to verse 20. It says, Behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak, because you did not believe my words. So you, you see here, even if we, we didn't know like that, he's, what he is saying is prove it, what we see is here is that Zechariah is unwilling to believe the promise of this angel that he is going to have a child. There's a hardness of heart here. And so, Gabriel, verse 19, it says, And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. Now, Gabriel means the strong one of God. I, I can get it done. You Don't worry. God's going to get it done here. Trust us in this process here. So he says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. 
and I came here and I told you that God was going to do something, and you doubt me? And you don't believe me? I've added some words there. But he says, I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. This was to be a glorious, wonderful day. But it's not going to be a glorious, wonderful day completely, because you're going to walk out of here unable to speak. Verse 20, behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Nine months later, no talking. You know, it's going to seem to indicate that he can't hear either because they're talking later on and, like, and they're saying, uh, uh, Elizabeth is there saying, we're going to call him John. And they're like, you can't name him John, that's silly. Let's go ask the dad. And they have to like, make signs to the dad, what do you want him to be? Or they actually write it out on a, a little piece of slate or something. Uh, so it seems like he couldn't hear. If he could hear, he would just say, yeah, John, that's what we wanted. Yeah, he wouldn't say it, but he would shake his head. Anyhow, uh, you'll be silent until the day, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now the people, they were waiting for Zechariah, who knows, what's it take, 10 minutes typically, 5 minutes, to get this, thing, this job done here, and yet he's in there 20 minutes, 30 minutes. What is going on? I've got to get to work. You know, this guy's in there, I don't know what he's doing. And so the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, remember they're there for one week, he went to his home. Well, after those days, his wife Elizabeth, she conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. All right? And so she is older, and she is pregnant now. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, sixth month of what? Sixth month of Elizabeth here, that's the context we've been looking at. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So Gabriel was in Jerusalem. Now he's up in Galilee, which is in the north. Some of you that have been there, you know exactly where it is. Galilee in the north is uh, a region essentially surrounding the Galilee Sea. And so the Galilee Sea is right up there. But the Jews pretty much only occupied, if it's a clock, think of it as a clock, they pretty much only occupied from 2 o'clock to the 1, to the 12, to 11, down to about the 6 o'clock. And the other side was Gentile land. So that area there, almost uh, three-quarters of the clock, that was what was referred to as the Galilee region there. And so Gabriel makes a trek up there, uh, and he gets to the Galilee region to a town that is called Nazareth. Nazareth is about an eight on the clock, if you can think of it that way. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now we came to her and he said, doesn't it feel like we should have Christmas music in the background? It, it just seems peculiar to read this at this time of year. Anyway, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of a greeting that this might be. So she's not so bothered that an angel has come to her, but she's, she's bothered by the phrase, O favored one, because she was just a poor girl. She was probably around the age of 15. She may have actually been a little bit younger uh, than that, maybe a little bit older, but somewhere right around the age of 15. I'm not a highly favored one. I'm just a peasant girl. 
And yet this angel comes to her and he says greetings to her, O favored one. And then he tells her that the Lord is with her. And some versions also add, some manuscripts also add, blessed are you among women. And now that, that is quite a greeting. Me? I'm, a, I'm not even quite a woman yet. I'm just a girl. Um, but blessed are you among women. So she was greatly troubled at this saying, and she tried to discern what sort of a greeting it might be. And the angel said to her, just like said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You know, who knows? Was her mind beginning to think, am I dying? You know, are you taking me to heaven? Or like, what is going on? He said, no, don't be afraid. Everything's good. Uh, you have found favor with God. And behold, he tells her, now, you know, he probably said, all right, steady yourself. Uh, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. What a beautiful name. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now it begins by saying, and you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Really? Oh, okay. I mean, that's like interesting. Um, Then it goes on and it says that you're going to call his name Jesus. Jesus is essentially Joshua uh, for the Jewish people. That's a very common name um, amongst the Jews. It's a a name, Jesus is sort of the the Greek, it's it's an English transliteration of the Greek. Joshua would be what they would have said, or Yeshua, something like that. Uh, It's a name which which means Jehovah is salvation. And as I said, it was a very popular name amongst Jewish boys. And so nothing too shocking here. Again, maybe in her mind, she's thinking, oh, great, when my husband and I get married, we're going to have a kid, it's going to be wonderful. But then it goes on now, everything changes. It says, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God is going to make him a king on the throne of the father David. He's going to reign forever, and of his kingdom, there will never be an end. You know, David was an amazing king, served for 33 years, 40 years really, if you put the two together there, but it came to an end. You know, Solomon, amazing king, but it came to an end. Here, this kingdom will never come to an end. You're probably familiar with the book of Isaiah and the prophecy there in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, you get it on Christmas cards. Uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And it goes on and it describes what is being described here in verse 33. In a sense, you can look at verses 31 and 32 as the first coming of Christ, and verse 33, 32 and a half and 33, as the second coming of Christ. Uh, and all of these things are being given to Mary here, and she must, her, her mouth must have dropped wide open. She must be, well, she is, we see, completely confused. Notice what she says in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And I'm sure Gabriel, again with the questions, you know, and he's probably thinking, I just had this issue. But there's a very big difference between Zachariah's question and Mary's question. Zachariah's question comes from the place of unbelief. Mary's question is coming from the the place of, so how's this going to happen? Because I'm not really married yet. I'm betrothed. I have never been with a man. You know, how are we going to, how's this? She's just trying to understand here. So she's not doubting anything, just trying rather to understand here. So the angel answers her and says, The Holy Spirit 
This is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so the idea is God is just going to implant the seed into you, and you're going to be pregnant. Just like that. In the same way that when the... the oh, we're going to get into science here. But when the sperm and the egg come together, a miracle is done anyway. God's going to do a miracle here. And he doesn't even need a guy in the whole process here because he's in the miracle business. And so he's going to put a child in you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child will be called Holy, the Son of God. And just to sort of give her confidence, she probably doesn't know this, likely isn't aware of this, It's not like they picked up the phone or put it out on Facebook or something. Uh, As an example of it, look at verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, you remember her, that nice old aunt of yours? Well, she's pregnant. So it goes on, it says, in her old age, she's conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, that's all I needed to know. You know, I was just trying to figure out the process here. She said, great, I'm in. Put me down. What do I got to do? Her words are actually, verse 38, Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So she essentially reporting for duty is what she says here. You know, and I appreciate this a lot about Mary. I think most of you know, I come from a Roman Catholic background. And one of the things in the Roman Catholic Church is that the tendency of the Roman Catholic Church, some churches are a little bit different than others, but is to elevate Mary so high that those of us that are on the other side of the spectrum, the Protestant uh, aspect of things, sometimes we rebel and we want to bring down Mary so low, you know, because she doesn't deserve to be up there. We're going to put her back down here and this sort of thing here. And quite honestly, I think, certainly, I think the Catholic Church, in elevating to Mary to the place where people actually pray to her, I think they are wrong in that regard, and I would call that idolatry. But I think also the Protestant Church, when uh, we kind of drop her down to this place where she's not that favored one that the Scripture calls her, I think we also make the same mistake here. We're going to see some amazing things about Mary, and, and quite frankly, I think we would all wish that our kids, ourselves, that we were like Mary. We had an attitude that when God said, look, I need you to report for duty. Can you do that for me? That we wouldn't say, spell it all out. Let me know what I'm doing here before I sign on the dotted line. But we'd say, all right, I'm your servant. She says, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. What a great way to respond to God when he says, I need you for a job. Are you willing to take it? And so anyway, she says, behold, the servant of the Lord, some of your versions, the handmaiden of the Lord. And it goes on. It says, In those days Mary arose, and she went in haste, or with haste, into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, it leaped in her, excuse me, leaped in her womb. So you, again, you see that the Bible refers to this as a baby in her mother's womb. That this isn't just you know, some fetus up to people to decide what to do with until the particular time. This is an actual child formed by the Lord, alive and, and uh, kicking, literally here. Uh, jumping, I think, is the word that it says, leaping in her mother's womb. Yes, sir. Going back to the, the virgin birth, so to speak, um, isn't it really important to point out that because the Father was God, is power of 
Yeah. yeah. Certainly so. Absolutely. Yeah, I am with you. That's a good point. Right, absolutely. That's a very good point. So, um, she makes to there in haste, um, seemingly related to the fact that uh, either she's pregnant and uh, things are coming down her way, uh, that people are going to start to talk, or she wants to get there to see Elizabeth before. We don't know what it is necessarily that's causing her to go in haste, but she gets there quickly. She gets to the house. Uh, we already learned that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. And as um, soon as she comes in, John comes, uh, comes alive, if you will. He knows, and he's excited about it. Uh, verse 42, and she exclaimed, oh, because she got kicked or something by a baby. Oh, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, again, just a quick word here. Blessed are you among women. You know, I think many would say that Mary is above women, uh, above all um, of creation, really. But the reality is that, that Mary was a woman. We're going to see it a little bit later. She'll refer to her baby as her Savior, indicating she needed a Savior. It goes, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, oh my goodness, it's starting now, people referring to Jesus as Lord already, even before he's born, should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I'm sure Mary was floored by that. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And you know, you see, you just put the two stories together. Zechariah didn't believe what the Lord spoke. And so he's experiencing the consequences of that, a curse, if you will. He can't speak maybe can't hear as well, at least temporarily. Here, though, she's being called blessed for believing that she would see the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And there's this idea here that the Lord blesses us as we obey him, as we uh, believe him and obey him. The Lord blesses that. And so she's blessed, and that's what Elizabeth says to her. And now Mary gives this remarkable 10, 11 verses or so uh, here they call it the Magnificat, and it says, "Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. That's all I want to do is draw attention to Him.' You think of a magnifying glass, and it takes those things that are small, and in some ways in our society, even though the Lord is enormous, the Lord is small. He's out of sight. He's out out of people's mind here. But she wants to live a life in such a way that draws glory to Him. My soul magnifies the Lord. My emotions, my senses, everything that I am." And my spirit, that which is able to know God, rejoices, or King James says rejoiceth, in the past tense, in God my Savior. Again, notice Mary needs a Savior. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, she's not saying that from the perspective of they're all going to call. Like she's not thinking really highly of herself. Uh, it's just more of an acknowledgement of what the Lord has done with this humble peasant that he would cause me to give birth to uh, the Son of God. Um, we know a little bit later when Jesus will be brought to the temple uh, to be circumcised, they had to bring an offering. Uh, and in that offering, uh, her and Joseph, they bring two 
birds. I think the passage says turtle doves. They bring these two birds that are there. Uh, from the Old Testament, the family was to bring a lamb, but if they couldn't afford that, then they could bring birds. So the idea is, uh, is conveyed there that they were a very poor couple, young couple, poor couple. They were peasants, uh, that we might say. Humble estate, she describes it as in 48. Verse 49 continues, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So she magnifies the Lord. Uh, Almost everything she said in that section there is about what God has done, uh, magnifying the Lord. And then finally, uh, 56, not finally, but 56, and Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. So we suspect that she was there at the birth of John because, uh, you know, six months, three months, nine months, but it doesn't necessarily say that. Uh, whether she left after he was born or just before, it would seem silly to leave just before, but who knows. Verse 57, now that you're leaving, where are you going? You know, I'm about to get married. You'll be okay, you know. Anyway, verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. How sweet. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So they had the paperwork, birth certificate, all filled out already. It's going to be Zechariah here. But his mother said, oh, no, no, his name is going to be John. And they said to her, John, none of your relatives is called John. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, John. His name is John. And so they all wondered, I wonder why they want to call him John. And immediately his mouth was opened, this is Zechariah, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing God. So it's as Zechariah submitted himself fully to God's plan that his tongue was loosed, and he was able to proclaim the goodness of God and bless God. Here he is now, he's believing, he's arguing, he's not saying Zechariah, whatever he's saying, no, it should be John, the vision said John. So it's going to be John. So he's believing God. His tongue is loosed. He's blessing the Lord. And fear came on all their neighbors that, you know, here's this guy who was mute. Now he's speaking. What's going on here? And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Did you hear about the priest? Sounds like a joke. Did you hear about the priest of Judea? And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, wow, what kind of a kid is this going to be? What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. I love Zechariah here. He couldn't talk a minute ago. Now look. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him 
without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. Now, those first eight verses of this uh, prophecy of Zechariah, they're not talking about John. I'm sure most people standing there probably did, because, you know, it's talking about, they, they have this baby that is there, and it's talking about the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation, all that. They're, they're probably thinking that about John. But actually, what Zechariah is referring to is Jesus. This baby that isn't even born yet, but he's going to be on the scene in another six months or so. Uh, and, and even then, nobody's really going to take notice of him, that many people, for another 30 years or so. But that's who Zechariah is speaking of. One of the interesting things about it, in verse 72, Zechariah references the idea of mercy or favor. So it says, to show mercy promised to our fathers. Remember the name John means favorite of God or the mercy of God. It says, and to remember his holy covenant. Zechariah, the word literally means the Lord remembers. And then finally there it says, uh, he remembers his holy covenant and the oath that he swore to our father. The name Elizabeth means the oath of God. And so you see how he sort of worked in their little family tree there into this little prophecy or this prophecy that is given here. Let, notice it picks up in verse 76 and he says, and you child, again indicating before he was talking about someone else and now he, I suspect he's probably holding this baby. Like what's that movie, Lion King? You know, where they lift up the baby. Where he's, he's probably holding this baby. Everyone is gathered and watching. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this, that will be the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember a little bit later, uh, the voice of one crying, in, crying, I should say, in the wilderness makes straight the paths of the Lord. You know, this idea of the ministry of John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You guys remember this. I wasn't there for that study uh, but I'm sure you all were. You memorized this verse. Malachi chapter 3, 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking, I believe, or certainly I think it indicates, of John the Baptist, the prophet of the Most High. Another place in the scripture, John is referred to as the greatest of all the prophets. And why is he the greatest of all the prophets? Simply because what every one of the prophets before him was talking about, John is pointing to. That's the one that we're, we've all been talking about. And so in that sense, he is the greatest of all the prophets. And then finally, verse 80, And the child grew, John grew, and he became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And we're going to go on to see that John was a pretty unique character uh, in his clothing, in his choice of food and all these sorts of things. He was a peculiar guy, uh, but he had a wonderful message, and that was a message of preparing your hearts to receive the gift of God that is coming to you and the message of the kingdom. Repent. And, and I think in some ways that's our ministry. Here we are, we're Christians, we're 
here on planet Earth. God, what do you want from me? You just want me to live out my days, die, and go to heaven? And then take me now, kind of thing. You know, I got a job for you. I got a role for you. And in many ways, we have the ministry of John the Baptist. Our job is to prepare people so that when the Lord interacts with them and he conveys to them his message of salvation, Jehovah is salvation, that they'll be ready to receive it. They, we've planted the seed, we've watered the seed, and God will bring the increase. So I'd encourage you, think of your life, maybe you already do, but think of it from a different perspective. My job on this earth is to help people get ready for that time when the Lord will come to them and seek to reveal himself to them, that they'll be ready to receive that, the ministry of John the Baptist. Amen? All right, well, that's Luke chapter 1. Come back next week. We'll do Luke chapter 2, maybe, and 3. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for people like John the Baptist, for people like Mary. Uh, Lord, I even understand Zechariah uh, having a hard time uh, really trusting all these things. And Lord Elizabeth, who uh, certainly seemed to go along with the plan and was ready to go and uh, was happily uh, a servant of yours and to, to give birth to this great uh, prophet. So, Father, we know that you uh, raise us up for opportunities and ministries, and, Lord, we look to the examples that we have just seen here, and, Lord, we want to be a people that are used by you to help introduce others to the place of faith. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see those that are in need. Give us boldness to speak out and to share, Lord, uh, sometimes a tough message like John had to share. Repent. Lord, help us to be uh, like Mary that says, all right, I'm just your handmaiden. Do with me and through me as you will. So Lord, use this teaching in our lives to make us more like you and to be effectively used by you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.